There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. I wanted to start this episode just by saying that we're all a bit heartbroken this week in the Irish Times with news that our colleague Dave McKechnie, the Deputy Foreign Editor of the Irish Times, died at the age of 45 very unexpectedly and tragically this week. He was a really talented journalist, hugely intelligent and interesting and interested in everybody and every thing. People have been saying how lovely he was, what a warm person he was, how kind, self-deprecating and very funny. That's what I'll remember about him. And everybody here is reeling at the news. He's gone way too soon. And I just wanted to send our condolences from the Women's Podcast and our support to his wife, Lillian, and to all of Dave's family and friends. He's gone way too soon, as I said, and he's going to be badly missed by all of us in the Irish Times. Rest in peace, Dave. Now, if you are a bit of a baker and if you have small bakers in your house like I do, then you're in for a treat today. Coming up later, we're going to be talking to a woman who became an Instagram and TikTok famous person during the pandemic for her incredible cakes, cookies, tray bakes, many of which are so simple they only use three ingredients. They might not be for everyone because not everyone loves Oreos the way that this woman does. But as Eloise Head told me, She's found her baking lane and she is very much sticking to it. Yeah, you get the impression that some people look down on it because it's not complicated enough or you are using like a very standard biscuit or something. But in all honesty, people love it and that's all I I really care about. You know, I'm appealing to a certain audience and I love that audience, so I don't really mind what other people think. They can go follow another baker. You know, there's there's plenty of us out there. More from Eloise Head about her first book, Baking It Easy, later on. Before that, we were delighted when Twitter Dublin got in touch to tell us they wanted to announce some exciting news on the podcast. Their Twitter for Good initiative was set up by the founders of the social media company to give back. And each year, a different charity is named as their partner. This year, that charity, I'm happy to say, is the Brilliant Women's Aid. So Twitter MD Sinead McSweeney and Women's Aid CEO Sarah Benson came on the podcast to tell us about their partnership and about what it's going to mean for an organisation that works so tirelessly to prevent gender-based violence in all its forms and something that is such a global issue. I began by asking Sinead McSweeney to tell us all about Twitter for Good. So Twitter for Good is a 
concept dates back to the very, very early days of Twitter. Uh, one of our founders, Biz Stone, um, was adamant that this element of giving back, building communities uh, where we have offices, etc., would be a core part of our culture. So I think particularly in the early days when, you know, Twitter is about 15, 16 years old, we've only actually turned a profit in the last couple of years. It was very much around volunteering and ways in which our people could do things uh, for communities and and groups um, around us. So some years back from a Twitter Dublin perspective, um, we decided that one of the ways we would do this is by choosing a charity of the year. Um, And then the employees would spend two days of the year uh, fundraising um, and doing other activities for that organization. So um, the team vote on the charity at the start of the year. Um, and this year, it, we are delighted that it is Women's Aid. Okay. And what? how does it work then? What happens? What kind of activities and what kind of fundraising goes on? Well, everything and anything. Um, as I say, there's it's two full days, uh, one in the spring and uh, one in the autumn. Um, and uh, it, it it has varied. We've become more and more innovative as as time went on. So, uh, you know, we we do the usual cake sales, etc. Um, we have kind of various sponsored tournaments. You know, with table tennis, kicking balls into nets, etc. It gets very very competitive, um, but it's all uh, driving uh, towards um, raising as much funds as possible. Um, and then invariably the, the management team is is humiliated at some point in the day as well, also for funds. Um, and uh, that's, uh, you know, we've 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 a good a good track record in fundraising and I suppose also motivated by the fact that now uh, we're in a position where the company will match whatever we raise. Well, that's brilliant. So just before I go up, bring Sarah in, when your uh, staff uh, voted for Women's Aid or nominated, what kind of feedback were you getting? Because that's why we wanted to have you on, because Women's Aid are the charity. And uh, what were they saying? Why do they want Women's Aid? I mean, generally what we found is that the choice of charity is is driven by you know, what is having a resonance uh, with the team at a particular point in time. So, you know, in the past, we would have been Peter McFerry Trust at a time when people, you know, the, the visibility of homelessness on, on the streets um, was was quite acute. Um, and uh, this year, I think, uh, particularly the start of this year, the, the, the concept of, you know, gender-based violence um, was very much a part of the news cycle. But also we were coming out of, uh, various lockdowns over the last two years where um, we had done a lot of work with organisations all around the world, actually, around uh, domestic violence and using the platform to raise awareness of resources that were available to people who may have thought um, there was no avenue for them, um, particularly in lockdown. And um, the kind of third element is an acute consciousness of the role that unfortunately social media can play for bad as well as for good um, in the area of gender-based harassment. So I think all of those things were um, top of mind uh, for the, the various members of the Twitter Dublin team as they came to vote on this year's charity. And just because you brought it up there, I mean, I think that is a massive problem. I mean, I'm often struck on Twitter. I love Twitter, as you know, and I'm on there a lot about um, the joy and the great stuff that can come out of it, the connections, the empathy, in fact, the yeah, the connections with people and the, all that good stuff. And then there is this flip side, which I know is a constant um, issue for you. And particularly, as you said, aimed at women a lot. Is there any particular things at the moment that Twitter is working on to try and minimise or reduce that? 
Well, I think the the big drive is um, a recognition that while you know content moderation itself is very important um, in in terms of removing uh, content that uh, breaches our rules and of course any content that is illegal, that really is a remediation after harm has occurred. So trying to look at focus on preventing you know, the use of machine learning, et cetera, to have proactive enforcement of our rules. Um, so and reducing the burden on people to have to report content themselves, um, but also kind of product features um, it, it which are currently in test mode, um, such as prompts uh, for people before they tweet, a kind of an are you sure you want to tweet this, et cetera. And also making sure that our policies around non-consensual nudity, sharing of private information are robust. Um, but I think on the prevention side, and again, this is uh, why Women's Aid, um, I think, is 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 a good charity partner for this year, is on the prevention side, you know, looking at research, looking at causes, looking at the general societal trends that, that continue, you know, means that we still have this issue around women being treated uh, differently, um, whether it's in the public sector or unfortunately in, in private places um, that, that Women's Aid, I think, has done. A lot of work in that area as well, um, which I think is important if you truly want to look at prevention. Yeah, and that's a good time to bring Sarah in because, Sarah, we had you on during the pandemic already. Well, it's was a while ago now. But take us through, I suppose, what we all know, how much the demand for your services have increased and any um, organisations working with vulnerable women or women who've been um, abused. What is the picture? I know it's quite bleak and continues to be. Yeah, thanks, uh, Roisin, and, and thanks, Sinead. I, I mean, I think the first thing, rather than starting with the bleak, is just to acknowledge that um, there's two sides to every coin. And I've worked on uh, both the issue of domestic and sexual violence for well over two decades now. And I can really say, and I know my colleagues um, who are kind of tenured in the same way, would be saying that right now there there definitely is an ability to firstly have the conversation. Um, there is a public focus and attention that's going beyond um, more so than before, you know, a, a kind of flash in the pan focus. Um, now, that's not to say that, that, that you don't have to work very hard to keep it in the public conscious. But right now there has been um, a layering and a, a much more deep incremental social conversation developing around domestic and sexual violence. And I think, you know, the fact of you know, being nominated by the staff team of a company like Twitter um, is 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 firstly just fantastic, full stop, because the organisation has to raise in excess of 50% of its running costs every year from fundraising. But the fact that that was the issue that was top of mind, I have to say, you know, 15, 10 even years ago, I don't think that would have been the case. So I think, you know, um, it's important to look at where the opportunity is when something has got a, a focus on it, because as I say, focus can be deflected quite quickly. So we need to put it to work. And indeed, in Women's Aid and with our frontline services, uh, but also the social change component of our work, because we do straddle those two pillars very consciously, very deliberately. You know, we run the National Domestic Violence Helpline. We we provide a gateway to all of our colleagues then, you know, the refugees around the country. We have a, a significant range of face-to-face services services in Dublin, um, but also then our awareness, our campaigning, our advocacy, our training and development work as well. So um, we've seen all 
of those aspects of our work in increasing demand. Um, and that's because we have also worked very hard to put them out there to say you, you should be, you know, we, we know that our frontline services only reach the tip of the iceberg. And when you include all of the other, you know, local domestic violence services and all of the rape crisis centres uh, and the others who work in that more niche way, you know, with victims of trafficking and others, we know we are only all of us reaching the tip of the iceberg. So, you know, on the one hand, you, you know, we, we're saying we're under increased demand, but we also know the more we do this, the more demand there will actually be. That doesn't necessarily mean that we are seeing an explosion in prevalence of domestic and sexual violence. Unfortunately, it's already here and has been before the pandemic. You know, one in three women worldwide will experience some form of sexual assault or rape in their lifetime. In Ireland, one in four women will experience abuse from a current or former intimate partner. By the age of 25 in Ireland, one in five young women are are subjected to intimate relationship abuse. So, you know, what has happened in the pandemic is, you know, absolutely exacerbating factors for those particularly where their homes were not safe. Um, but we've also simply had a continuity of, of these issues, but an opportunity to talk about them and, and increase our work on them. Yeah, and I think one of the things that has got people talking was the tragic um, murder of Ashley Murphy. Um, Sinead, was that a factor that came up in staff? And was that is that something that has um, created that feeling in Twitter and obviously among a lot of people uh, to try and tackle this in a more uh, robust way? I mean, I, I think it was an element. Um, obviously, the the story um and and the the news coverage was was quite acute at the time um obviously we had the the murder of Sarah Everhard last year um but i, I think i think it's a, i think it was a recognition of the, you know the the ev- the everyday um violence and harassment as well that there's that that while yes there can be single moments that um, rally people around um the issue and and there's there's a a clamor uh, for change. Um, I think it's important that that we we recognise that this is not a once in a moment event. This is an everyday reality for a lot of women. I know from from my own background, working for Angarda Shikana and before that the Police Service of Northern Ireland. You know that that sense that there are there are cases every day. Um, of women who are subjected um, to violence and harassment uh, because they are women, um, and you know that to tackle this, we need to to go beyond the I guess the sense of outrage that we have when one single event occurs and recognize all victims, um, and 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 to do that, we have to go deeper, um, and we have to look at the causes and the drivers um, of the of the attitudes that kind of. Uh, you know, and make people think they can do this, but also, you know, occasionally for the rest of us to to not be accepting of it, but that that we have a almost a tolerance for a certain level of 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 attitudes and violence towards women that just is not acceptable. And Sarah, can I ask you about the recommendations of the Citizens Assembly on gender equality regarding domestic, sexual, and gender based violence? Because I know you've been involved with that, but also about your thoughts on um, Justice Minister Helen McEntee's work to address those issues relating to gender-based violence, because she really does seem to be, I mean, it remains to be seen and we always are very hopeful, but what do you think about any progress being made on that level? 
Yeah, uh, with regard to the Citizens' Assembly on gender equality, it's interesting to see how that has moved because uh, I, with some colleagues from the Rape Crisis Centres, was able to address the Joint Committee of the Oireachtas on gender equality who were reviewing all the recommendations with a view to implementing them. But the fact that we were even there, as my my colleague from um, the Rape Crisis Network pointed out, was not, not a given. We had to lobby for gender-based violence to be included in the terms of reference of the Citizens' Assembly on Gender Equality. Now, that, that's saying something. And we, we had to lobby quite hard. But now, then that it did happen, and then clearly and inextricably the link between gender inequality and an unequal society, you know, across the board, and how that is both a cause and a contributor to violence against women, male violence against women predominantly, you know, that at least now has been, you know, channeled through that process. It's now being addressed by the Joint Oireachtas Committee. And at the same time, and in parallel, uh, the work of the Department of Justice and, and Minister Helen McEntee, and I would acknowledge in conjunction with Minister Roderick O'Gorman, because they both collaborated on the development of the new um, third national strategy on domestic sexual and gender-based violence means that there is actually uh, quite a good clear line of sight across government um, that does now have that underpinning what 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 Sinead was talking about that uh, necessary recognition that clear-eyed assessment of the social context which is a gender unequal society and that as as uh, as I say a contributory and a causal factor so that is where the work needs to happen as well as on specific incidents, specific crimes, because it is about behaviour and attitudes. And also, crucially, um, when we look at the issue of violence in general and we look at, you know, the perpetration of violence against women is overwhelmingly by men. The perpetration of violence against men is overwhelmingly by men. And in the round, you know, when you look at the drivers, the motivators and the behaviours and attitudes that inform that violence as well, it tends to be informed by that same negative, narrow, hierarchical um, uh, definition of masculinity, which is, is, doesn't fit or suit young men or boys in their diversity either. So it's win-win, actually, for us to work at this. And, um, and so there's a lot uh, riding on this new national strategy. Um, and crucially, what we will be looking very carefully at is the implementation plan and looking at what in concrete terms is going to be done, how it's going to connect across government in terms of integrating policy, and then how that encourages the public as well to play their part, because obviously, you know, this is a social issue um, and it requires a whole community response. Uh, And finally, Sinead, we're delighted you came on the Women's Podcast to tell us about your nominated charity for this year. It's great news. Twitter for good. It's a great initiative. You've got two days, one in May and one in October when staff will be getting involved. Tell us a bit about it and how much you expect to maybe raise because I think Twitter matches donations of up to $2,000 per employee. Is that right? Yeah. In the past, we have raised across the year somewhere between twenty five and €30,000. Um, and then uh, that would be matched. Uh, so that will be our aim, if not to, to meet that. Uh, well, hopefully to exceed it, uh, but definitely uh, to meet it. Uh, so we will be... Um, Getting, uh, starting the planning has started already actually for the the May one and excited also that it will be in person because that will give us uh, more scope. We were definitely running out of ideas for online um, online fundraising. Um, so uh, the, the idea of being able to, to get together and hopefully hear from Women's Aid um, directly and in person too about uh, the work that they're doing and 
how the funding assists them. Uh, because uh, th- that's that's an important driver too in getting people to dig deep. Yeah. And uh, Sarah, just obviously you you must be delighted to have been chosen as this. And what will it mean to your organisation? And it's fantastic. We are really excited, um, not just that the funds raised allow us not just to sustain the, the services that we already have, but also to help us to try and innovate and expand our services. And, you know, we, we are initiating an, a number of pilots. We have one with maternity hospitals. We have one to expand our reach to young uh, people, particularly young women. Um, and so that uh, and, and where we see needs now, we can meet them better. Even our emergency fund for women, you know, which covers security costs like changing their locks, CCTV, but also, you know, addressing in some small ways the, the, the kind of indignity of the poverty that can be inflicted upon them by economic abuse or, or, the, or the cost of, of having to separate from an abusive partner with their children. So there's so many areas that we um, can, can uh, put, you know, funds raised to work. But also, crucially, it's wonderful to be able to meet and collaborate with the communities within companies, um, you know, because a lot of our conversations now are, you know, not just how can we help you, it's how can you help us to help others, you know, as allies, as bystanders, you know, as peers, as friends, as colleagues. So um, it's a fantastic connection for us. Sinead and Sarah, thank you so much for coming on and talking about it. And we look forward to seeing what that money does for your organisation and for um, the movement in general, just to try and reduce gender-based violence and finally tackle what is such a pervasive problem has been for so long. And like you say, before the pandemic. Um, Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thanks. That was Sinead McSweeney and Sarah Benson there. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, I think everybody got a bit more into baking when we were all stuck at home during the pandemic. And my next guest certainly did, creating amazing cakes, cookies, tray bakes, small bites, mug cakes, sweet breakfasts and desserts that entranced certainly my children and millions of other people when she shared them on social media. British woman Eloise Head is known online as Fitwaffle and in her first book, Baking It Easy, she's collected a hundred of her most loved and brand new recipes to make baking oh so simple. These include 53 ingredient recipes, including her crowd-pleasing Oreo cake and delicious white chocolate fudge, plus all of her favourite four and five ingredient recipes, including something called Speculoose ice cream and a cinnamon roll that is made in a mug. We talked about her pandemic rise to social media fame, her struggles with food in the past and the perils of having to be online all the time when the internet and the chatter around it is a huge part of your business. 
As my children are huge fans, I also got them involved too, as you'll hear. Here she is, Eloise Head, or as she is better known to so many, Fit Waffle. Eloise, thank you so much for joining us on the Women's Podcast. My children are very, very excited and they're going to come on later to ask you a couple of questions. But for any of our listeners who aren't on TikTok, who aren't that, who aren't on Instagram or looking at all these things, tell us about what you do, because it's kind of a little bit of a new-ish job, I suppose, in the modern world. Yeah, absolutely. So I basically run this brand called Fit Waffle and Fit Waffle is basically an entity across social media. So what that means is, I'm my name is obviously Eloise, but <laughs> my brand is Fit Waffle and I basically produce really short, simple recipe videos online. So I post these across Instagram, across Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and um, yeah, that, that's basically what I do. I make food and I post it online. It sounds very strange, but that is my job. <laughs> <laughs> so like in back in the day, we'd have watched, well, people old enough like me would have watched Delia Smith or, you know, people on the television uh, making their recipes. And nowadays, the way young people are finding out about baking and cooking a lot of the time is on these platforms. So you are hugely influential. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah, I think that, Social media is just so huge nowadays and especially younger people, they're turning a lot more to social media than they are to what we would consider like now almost old school media, like TV, newspapers. Um, Yeah, social media has just blown up over the past few, well, few years, really. So listen, tell us about how you got started in it, because when you were a kid, you were always into baking from the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. So Basically, I I think my love of baking comes from my great auntie. So basically, my mum and dad would drop me off when they had to go to work. They'd drop off me and my sister to her house and we would just cook all day. So she was actually a dinner lady when she was younger. Well, yeah, when she was younger. Um, She was also the oldest of six siblings. So I think that she had to cook from a young age and she was always really passionate about teaching us how to cook, me and my sister. So we would make stuff like jam tarts, berry cakes, biscuits, date slices, which were my absolute favorites ever since I was young. I absolutely loved them. Um, Stuff like apple dumplings and apple pies as well. So very traditional. She would also make me make us lunch. So she would teach me how to cook stuff like chicken and rice. So really basic stuff, but I always loved it so much. I think that's where my love of baking really came from. Like that's where it started. For, I suppose, how did you start off with with the social media part of it? Because first of all, you were going off and taking photographs of very lovely food all around London. I mean, when I was growing up, I was really, really into sport and not necessarily fitness, just sport. I was one of those kids that didn't stop. (laughs) I was always running around and like food was always a big part of my life as well. But with social media, I mean, at the time I was working as a personal trainer and a gym manager and I was basically learning to enjoy all foods in moderation. So I was basically tracking macros at the time, which meant I was tracking my carbs, fat and protein. And um, I was just trying to balance out my love of food with my love of fitness. And I just wanted to share this journey on social media. Um, And I had an online blog at the time as well. So I was doing a bit of writing. 
Um, I started posting photos of food to my social media with a little bit of fitness in there. Um, basically from going out into London with my now fiance and just basically exploring restaurants, exploring street foods and just posting these foods, like these indulgent foods on my social media. And it just seemed to take off. People just seemed to love it a lot more than they loved just the fitness content. So I just took it from there. It just became this food account, almost like a guide to London food. Can we go back a little bit? Because you did mention mm. there um, when you were working um, and getting into nutrition and really discovering what food is and how you know, the different elements of it, but you didn't always have a very healthy relationship with food like earlier on in your life. Can you tell us about that? When I was about 18 years old, I was in college and I was about to go on my first ever girls holiday. <laughs> and I'd started to go to the gym. I was into fitness. I was into stuff like spin classes. And um, I just felt this enormous pressure on myself as a lot of young girls do. I mean, I just wanted to look amazing for this holiday. And um, I did some very poor research about food. And I just came to this conclusion that I should just cut out all foods that I considered, quote unquote, to be bad for me, which sort of set off this downward spiral, I would say. So I would cut out stuff like cake, chocolate, crisps, anything processed, really. But all of these foods I obviously really enjoyed. <laughs> I'd grown up with this stuff. But also stuff like white bread and white potatoes. But I would eat sweet potatoes and brown bread. So it really didn't make sense now that I look back at it. But my mind was just so focused on this is healthy and this isn't. It was very black and white, like I don't eat these things, but I eat these things. Um, when I came back from my holiday, I had lost even more weight. Um, I was massively under eating. And I basically became almost addicted to eating what I would call like clean. But it almost felt like a control mechanism that I almost felt empowered to say no to certain foods. And um, it just seems so crazy and so backwards to me now because it's totally different to how I think now. I look back and I almost don't understand the mindset that I had back then. But at the time, it made so much sense. <laughs> and so how did it change, Eloise? Did educating yourself help? And is that was that the kind of turning point when you realised that the way you'd been thinking about food was completely wrong? There was actually a little bit of a trigger like moment for me where um, I actually saw a photo of myself and it was from this like girls holiday that I went on, but I hadn't taken it. It wasn't posed or anything. I looked at it and I suddenly was like, oh my gosh, I, I look so malnourished. I don't look fit and healthy like I thought I did. It was almost like this body dysmorphia thing that I thought I was a lot bigger than I was. From there, obviously, it wasn't just like a, you flick a switch and, oh, I'm going to change now. It, you know, this has been years of learning to like enjoy foods in moderation. And um, I basically went on a personal training course. I did it through my college. I wanted to learn pretty much everything I could about nutrition. So I started to do a lot of my own research at home. And I started to look at professionals in the industry that basically use science to back up their claims rather than, you know, oh, this fad diet or, you know, you should do this, but then not really have any backup of what they're saying. And um, that's when I basically started tracking macros. So um, this basically taught me that if I was eating the right amount of carbohydrates, fats and protein for my body, that the actual foods didn't matter that much. 
So obviously we want to aim for foods that are higher in nutrients. You know, you're not just going to go all day and eat donuts, but tracking <laughs> macros doesn't really allow you to do that anyway because, you know, it, it teaches you that, well, you should have enough protein because it's going to help with muscle growth. It's going to keep you fuller for longer. You know, it has so many benefits. So I found that my overall diet was a lot more balanced. I felt so much happier with myself, but I wasn't demonizing any like specific types of foods. So I knew that if I had a donut, that it was say three to 400 calories, but it wasn't going to hurt me and it wasn't going to ruin my progress. Basically, I learned that, you know, it's all about the amount of food you eat. It's just a lot easier to eat 2000 calories worth of donuts and chocolate than it is to eat in rice and plain chicken. (laughs) Then tell me about how lockdown, because lockdown was a big thing for all of us, obviously. But for some people, it proved really creative and it it kind of created a whole new world for them. And that's what happened to you, because you went from posting these pictures when you were allowed to go to restaurants to being stuck in your um, one bedroom flat in London and you decided you were going to start posting recipes and a lot of them have very few ingredients which I think is your one of your selling points. So tell us about what you first did. Do you remember the first couple of ones that you did? I posted a few recipes to my Instagram account previously and it was something that I always wanted to do but never had the time for like a lot of people until lockdown. So When restaurants closed and obviously the lockdown happened, I found myself with suddenly all this time and I had to make this decision then, you know, was I going to continue posting almost old content from uh, restaurants that I've been to or was I going to take this opportunity to finally start posting recipes like I'd always wanted to? So that's actually when I started the Fit Waffle Kitchen Instagram page right at the beginning of lockdown. And that was just going to be recipes. So that was like a pure recipe only page. And it just blew up. And um, one of the first recipes that I remember going viral <laughs> was basically this Oreo fudge recipe. So it was three ingredients, Oreos, white chocolate and condensed milk. And it was so simple, but so tasty. And I think Oreos resonate with so many people. But also, we didn't have stuff like flour in the shops and eggs. You know, we were going to the shops and toilet paper was gone, eggs were gone, flour was gone. But I could find Oreos, I could find white chocolate, I could find condensed milk. So if I could find that, hopefully a lot of other people could. So I think the fact that it was easy, it was fun, it was non-intimidating, I think just really drew people to these like quick, easy recipes, especially for kids as well. And then there was this real clamour for you to get a book written of Mm -hmm. all your recipes. And I was just looking up there, there was a seven way auction. So seven publishers bidding to, to be the one to publish your book. I wanted to ask you how your life has changed because you were going along, you were sort of a personal trainer, you were a nutritionist, you were you had your Instagram page, which was more of a hobby. This is now your full time job and your life. And uh, presumably you are a lot wealthier and successful now than you were at you know, the beginning of the first lockdown. It's a very strange world, social media, because I guess you almost don't realise how much like money there is in the internet. 
it's it's a very strange world compared to when I was working as a personal trainer and I would get paid a wage for working 40 hours a week. Now I get paid for advertising and for jobs that I do. And it's just very, very different. I mean, I work harder now than I have ever done. You know, social media doesn't allow you to really have a break. I work at the weekends. I work till 10 or 11 o'clock at night a lot of the time. I work more than I ever have, but it's probably the most rewarding thing that I've ever done. But how do you balance all that? Speaking of health and mental health and just having to take a break, because this idea that you're kind of you have this massive audience who are expecting stuff from you. Does it ever get to you from that point of view? No matter how um, much money you're getting, is there moments when it feels a bit overwhelming? It's something that I struggle with the most. I mean, sometimes I don't want to look in my comments section because I know there's going to be a negative comment in there. And, you know, sometimes I don't I always want to look at my messages because I just want time away from social media. And like I said, it doesn't really allow for that. So it, it is really difficult. And I mean, I, I work with my fiance and we are together 24 seven. Our lives basically revolve around work. Sometimes I just say, I don't want to talk about that right now. Let's go for a walk and can we just talk about something else? I mean, that does sound a bit bleak, actually. But and then I suppose that you... <laughs> <laughs> but then you have to wait up with the, the fact that you said it's the most... There's pros and It's the re- most rewarding stuff you've done, in a way. Um, and you're making a lot of people very happy, including my children, Joya and Priya. I'm just going to get them to come <laughs> in now. Joya and Priya, you are the ones who introduced me to Fit Waffle. And we have her book here, and you've made me loads of different things from it. Can you tell me, first of all, what are some of your favourite things that Eloise has, has um, invented? Um, well, so one of our favorites was in her well in her cookbook. It was you know like the apple crumble in like the mug, and it's like in the and then you put it in the oven. That was one of our favorites because we made it for one of our mum's dinner parties, and it I think it went like pretty well. Went really well. Everyone was very impressed. And also, when we sometimes go on a play date with our friend, we would make the Kinder Cups for two, or like the Nutella or the Nutella ones for two, which were really fun to make, and they were so delicious. And one of my favorite breakfasts. This wasn't in your cookbook, but it was on your TikTok. And um, the cinnamon rolls, but like the three ingredient ones. That was our one of our. We favorites. absolutely loved those because so. it was so easy. That's what we liked about it. And it was so delicious. Well, Joy and Priya are very um, keen bakers, Eloise, and they've been doing that for like since they were three or four. They've just been getting up on the counter and I've kind of let them away with, you know, just making whatever they wanted. And, and as a result, they're very independent in the kitchen. And I suppose some I know some parents are a bit wary of letting their children kind of do so much on their own in the kitchen. But do you, would you say it's a good thing to encourage people to do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, when I was with my great auntie and my gran as well, they were very much make a mess, do whatever you want. Here's some ingredients. Just be careful. (laughs) You know, if you need me to chop anything or you need me to turn on the stove, then, you know, get some help. But my mum was actually the opposite. So she liked a very clean house, meaning that if I was to bake or to cook something in the house, that if she came home, whilst I was in the middle of something, oh, it was very stressful for her. (laughs) (laughs) So I've kind of experienced both ends where 
someone that doesn't necessarily want me to do too much cooking and someone that really encourages it. And I would definitely verge to more the encourage it side. <laughs> I think and, it's really and Louise, good. What about people listening who might be thinking, oh, three ingredients like Oreos, condensed milk, it all sounds very basic. Is, do you get ever any, any snobbery about it? Like, are there some people a bit looking down on the kind of recipes that you do? I've never really had anyone say directly to my face or <laughs> the, you know, slide into my DMs and say like, you know, what you're doing is rubbish. I have told, someone has told me actually that this isn't real baking before, which, which is fine. You, you know, I don't, I don't mind. But um, yeah, you get the impression that some people look down on it because it's not complicated enough or you are using like a very standard biscuit or something. But in all honesty, people love it. And that's all I, I really care about. You know, I'm appealing to a certain audience and I love that audience. So I don't really mind what other people think. They can go follow another baker. You know, there's, there's plenty of us out there. <laughs> and, and Joy and Priya, do you have any questions for Eloise? Um, yeah, we do. We, so my question is, if you know this, what is your most like viral recipe, do you think? Depending on what platform I look at, I'm, I think it's uh, either <laughs> the Nutella stuffed French toast sticks, which has something like 113 million views on Instagram. Another one on TikTok is my Kinder Cheesecake. So that's another really, really popular one. And I think that has something like 60 something million views. So my question is, when you film your recipes, how do you set up your device? Okay, so I use an iPhone to film all of my content and to take all of my pictures. I find it really simple and an iPhone's so clever nowadays, so I can do so much with it. But basically, um, I have two setups. So I have an overhead setup where I have a frame that goes over a table with two tripod legs and then a bar that goes across the top. And then there's an arm that sticks out with a phone clip, which I basically just clip my phone into and it can move up and down. The other one I have is I have a tripod like you would put a camera on. And then I have an arm that attaches to the tripods that again, I can clip my phone into and I can basically move it around so I can change the angle of it. I can put it all the way up. I can put it all the way down. That's basically how I film them. What is your strategy for coming up with like new recipes? This varies depending on whether I've made something before. So if it's a brownie, you know, I've got my favorite brownie recipe. So that that's that's kind of the easy part. I've, I already know that I've got my brownie recipe down, but then I'm like, well, what, well, how can I change it? What can I put in it that's gonna be interesting to people? So that might be Kinder Chocolate. And then I'll basically take inspiration from what people like you would like, or, you know, what my audience has requested. So if they ask for, oh, we wanna see a, a Kinder Brownie, I'll go, right, I've, I've got you, I can do that. I'll, I'll just basically, I'll ask my audience, I'll have a look on places like Pinterest, I'll have a look on places like Instagram, like TikTok, I'll see if there's anything that comes up and I think, oh, that's really interesting. You know, how can I do that in like my way or how can I use that as inspiration to come up with something brand new? Thank okay. you so much. That's okay. It was nice so to meet much. you both. I just want to ask you, Eloise, what's next for you? Because it seems like you've achieved so much. You've got your book out and um, you're still in huge demand. It's sort of taken over your whole life and you're clearly making, both of you making a living from it. Is that is this both of your full-time business now, you and your fiancé? 
Yeah, so it's both of our full-time jobs now. In all honesty, I couldn't do it without him. You know, he does a lot of like the admin, he does a lot of the accounting, so much stuff that I just couldn't physically do absolutely everything. You know, he also helps me to post across like YouTube and Pinterest and all those other platforms. So, um, I mean, I think for me, it would be really good to focus on creating a bit more long form content. So even like this, you know, helping to sort of talk to people and tell my story and create some more in-depth recipe videos where it's not just 30 seconds of everything going very quickly that I can give a bit more information out. YouTube, Facebook, even live content. I've done a little bit of Twitch before, even though it's just been me sort of sitting and chatting. I think that would be great to do like some live cooking. Can I ask you about this? It just occurred to me as I'm speaking to you because I'm a lot older than you. How old are you? 27. Yeah, so like I'm 50, right? So my kids are coming to me telling me about you and we went to London recently and we had to go and hunt down a cupcake shop, which I'm going to forget the name of. Joy and Priya, what's the name of the cupcake shop that we had to go and find? Uh, Crumbs and Doilies. Crumbs and doilies. We went to find this uh, cupcake shop because they'd seen her on uh, TikTok yeah. and Instagram. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, as a parent, you're sometimes kind of going, what the hell is all this stuff? What is Lotus Biscuits? And why are they kind of watching all these things? And it can be a bit, not exactly intimidating, but the tendency can be to just not getting engaged in it. But actually, I don't think that's the right idea. What would you say about that when you're trying to um, maybe get involved in your children's online lives in a way that will make them want to share with you? Do you think it's important? Yeah, I really do think it's important because, I mean, I have to admit when, uh, I mean, my mum and dad, they won't like me saying this, but they're around 60 and... uh, (laughs) When when I first started getting into social media, they didn't have a clue what I was talking about. They didn't understand how I was going to make money from it. They didn't understand why I was posting to social media so much and what it could become. But now that they've they've got an invested interest in what I'm doing. They watch my stuff, they comment on my stuff, they share it with their friends. And I think that now that they've taken a real interest, I mean, they don't have to watch everything I do, but just to try to understand, you know, what these things are about and, you know, have have a look at like, what you know, what your kids are doing or, you know, what I was doing. It's so much easier now to engage with them and talk to them because you know how hard it is to try and teach someone something from scratch that they still don't have a clue at the end of it. You almost just think, oh, this isn't worth it. I just won't bother speaking to them about it. So I, I do. I think it's really important to almost just try and understand, you know, you don't have to be on Instagram. You don't have to be on TikTok. But I guess just to understand what it's all about and like why your kids like it, I think it's really important. And Eloise, I mentioned earlier that you are an influencer and you're an influencer in this particular sphere, but there is a lot of criticism as well about that whole world, isn't there? Where yeah. some people feel, you know, there's some very unhealthy sort of influences going on. How do you balance that? Or are you, do you look around and see that kind of thing? Do you understand the criticism? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that The word influencer, a lot of the time, people don't even want to be associated with being called an influencer. You know, if if people say to me, what's your job? I much prefer to say a content creator because it holds a lot less weight in a negative sense. I think that influencer can be seen as almost quite a fake term. So you think of an influencer as being something that, or something, someone (laughs) that shares 
like, well, does promotions on Instagram and shares their life and that everything is filtered and everything is almost like fake. And that's what a lot of people don't want to be associated with. And the problem there is there's a lot of really great people out there and a lot of really great accounts that have been put under this influencer bracket that shouldn't hold the same like negative thoughts towards as, you know, the people that give it a bad name. Just leave us with one recipe that if anyone who hasn't heard of you or doesn't really get the sort of three ingredient thing that would persuade them, something really delicious from your book that listeners should look out for. Okay, so for a three ingredient recipe, if you like Oreos, I would recommend making the cookies and cream fudge. Um, It is very sweet. So if you don't have a sweet tooth, I mean, maybe the book's not for you for a start, (laughs) but it is very sweet. So best enjoyed in small chunks. But if you want to be a bit more adventurous, then I would definitely recommend making the cinnamon apple cake. More ingredients, but one of my absolute favorite recipes. So I'd really recommend it. Brilliant. I'm just going to bring Joy and Priya back in to say goodbye to you. Thank you so much for taking time to be on this because we've like, if someone told us like two months ago that we'd be able to even talk to you, we like we wouldn't have believed that. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming here because this has been like so much fun. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you both. And I really, really appreciate it. It's really nice to actually meet, you know, you guys and my audience in person. So thank you so much for having me. That's great. Well, we'll keep making lovely things from your book over the next while. And uh, the best of luck to you in everything and including your wedding. Congratulations (laughs) in advance. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's been really nice to chat to you. That's all we have time for. Do get in touch with us on social media at IT Women's Podcast or by email thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Thanks to Sinead McSweeney, to Sarah Benson and to Eloise Head or Fitwaffle for joining us today. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.